When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth Game of Thrones Season 8 bonus episode, Season 8, Episode 5. The Bells. The Bells, 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 Bells. It's out. It's Monday. We've watched it twice. We've read lots of articles. We've seen lots of tweets. Man, I got a ton to say about this episode, potentially more than any other episode yet this season. Oh, whoa. I have so many different thoughts going through my head. I know we have the formula that's worked for the other episodes where we give quick reactions, MVP scenes, MVP characters, and predictions. Still going to try to stick to that, but I, I don't know if I can. I just don't know if I can do that because I'm like I'm literally bursting. I'm pumped up. I'm excited. I'm confused. I'm happy. I'm angry. I have I'm a little so hungry much. and uh, <laughs> and I'm a little uh, sleepy. No, just kidding. I'm none of those things. Laurel, how are you feeling? What's going through your mind? This episode is safe to say more contentious than the Dark Knight, or I'm sorry, and the, the Night, Night King being killed by Arya. I feel like. Yeah, uh, this has been a very, very divisive one. And it's interesting because I've had, as you know, if you've been listening to our bonus episodes, kind of wrapping these up. I've had pretty lukewarm reactions to the last two episodes of Game of Thrones. And um, I have, I think, made it clear that I didn't want to see a certain thing happen. And that certain thing happened. I'm going to go ahead and put up the spoiler wall now if you've made it this far. Dracarys, um, motherfucker. Spoiler Dracarys. wall. Um, the thing that I wanted to see the least on this show happened. But I knew it was going to happen because it had been pretty telegraphed over the course of this uh, season. Why don't you tell us all what that thing is? And that was a villain turn for Daenerys Targaryen. So we were obviously set up for it. That doesn't mean I like it. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm cool with it. But if we remove that from the equation, and I understand you can't remove that from the equation because it is the given circumstances of this episode, I actually really liked this episode. 
Um, in general, I thought it was a, a pretty great piece of television, a pretty great piece of entertainment, uh, and one of the more interesting and entertaining ones of this season so far. All right. So I largely agree with that. I mean, I went on a rant. If you listened listeners to our last Game of Thrones episode, how much I did not want to see the Mad Queen in Daenerys and how much I thought that people were putting way too much stock into the foreshadowing of that. And uh, yeah, here I stand a little bit of egg on my face. I was in the wrong there. A little bit of egg on your face. Oh, yeah. That wasn't even an intentional pun. I see what you did with my words. Well done. That being stated, man, all right, so let's talk about some good, the bad, and the ugly here. I think that's that's where I want to start. Is that okay with you? Absolutely. Let's so do it. Let's talk about the good. The good in this episode was its visual storytelling was unparalleled for a show that has already been unparalleled in visual storytelling. To call out some specifics, to ground the chaos of sacking a city in this world through the eyes of the people on the ground and to separate it from the generals and the heroes and the villains and to focus on the commoners and what they're going through in their experience gave us to the ability to feel a real grit and weight and emotion to the visual storytelling that I've never really seen in TV before and was freaking fantastic and was jaw dropping was edge of the seat with my heart pounding from the decision to have that one common woman with her daughter that they followed who had short hair, kind of like Cersei and the little girl with the horse figurine. Yeah. And then Arya directly tries to help save and fails. And just to have that little mini story in there, man, that was fan freaking tastic. Some other things that I thought were brilliant. Danny finally used her dragon strategically. Oh, that was so great. Throughout, and this is even true of the Mad Queen turn. The entire time she used Drogon, she used Drogon like the weapon that he can be. She used him intelligently. The, the downside of the Scorpions is they don't have mobility. They don't have speed. They're clunky and they're slow. She realized this and she outmaneuvered the Scorpions and was able to eviscerate the Iron Fleet within minutes. Well, and the funny thing about that was that in the uh, previous, or not in the previous, in the scenes from last week when they were teasing the upcoming episode, uh, they showed that uh, moment of Euron looking into the sky and being surprised at what he sees. And a whole lot of people were speculating, like, are there more dragons? Is Rhaegal still alive? Were there secretly a cache of dragon eggs somewhere? Or is there some other crazy surprise, like Gendry made dragon armor for Drogon? What is it going to be? And it turned out to be, oh, it's just Drogon. It's just Danny riding Drogon. But they figured out how to swoop in from up high well, and swoop up from down below and use actual strategy to their advantage. Yeah, well, she was above the cloud cover. Yeah. So she got close and then dipped below at a rate faster than they can fire the scorpions. Then she took out the scorpions on the back wall, traveled through the city, blew up the front gate, eviscerated the front troops, and then diagonally crossed back to knock out all the other scorpions. Which I thought was great. Effectively ending the battle in minutes, yeah, making it impossible for the Lannisters to win this fight. And it was some of the best strategy and the way that she used Drogon was brilliant. I've been kind of screaming bloody murder into the void. You have these amazing dragons and 
you haven't figured out how to use them as a weapon of war in this season. And she used them as an effective weapon of war strategically. That's some of the good. Let's see some of the other good in this Sandor Clegane and Arya Stark in that room that has the map of Westeros on it with a hole burned out where he convinces her to turn her back on revenge. That was really good. Yeah. I really totally enjoyed that. Uh, do you have any more of the good you'd like to add? Um, I would throw out the scene between uh, Jamie and Tyrion, uh, a really tender moment between those brothers uh, that uh, spoke to a lot of the unspoken things between those characters. And it was nice to see uh, them share their last moments together before, of course, Jamie uh, departs this earth with uh, the woman he came into this earth with. Other, oh, another thing on that point for the good. The Varys execution scene was phenomenal. Oh, the tension was beautiful. It was really uh, visually striking and uh, very arresting, yeah. And a fitting end for the Master of Spiders. Finally webbed a web he couldn't get himself out of. Tyrion choosing Daenerys over his friend Varys. Who knows who Varys sent what letters to and how and what secrets and damage he might have done before his end but a fitting end for a character who's constant shifting allegiances, constant plotting and scheming, even though he's doing it for the quote unquote good of the realm, uh, still eventually caught up to him and led to his execution. And they did it emotionally grounding that it had to be Tyrion to be the one that was also really good. Yeah. Agreed. I'd like to shift to the bad here. Okay. These are things that I thought were just bad. And I open this up for any to debate it with us here on the show, through our Twitter, through our Facebook. You guys know how to reach us at the Midnight Myth, whatever. Jamie and Euron, why was that fight in this episode? And I know I'm not a great creative professional. I'm a podcast host who also has a day job. So I don't want to come down too hard here but you wasted a lot of time showing these two men fighting. What were they fighting for? Was it just to get Jamie wounded before finding Cersei? Was it just to slow him down? Why is Euron even a character in this show at all? He's one of the worst parts of the entire adaptation. Euron in the books, and I've never said this on the podcast before. I'm like, oh, in the books, it's better. Because like that's what a douchebag says. A douchebag goes, well, you do, in the books. But in the books, Euron is a much more interesting character. He is. You call him the, you know, the, the cartoon ma- pirate. The cartoon pirate or the mad pirate. Trash Popeye. He he serves very little function. I'd never understand his motivations. Why does he wash up on the shore at the right time that Jamie's sneaking into King's Landing? Why is why does he challenge him to a fight? Why are they fighting to begin with? How does Jamie even beat him? He can't fight anymore. He doesn't have a good hand. Euron is a great of of one of the very like like small character building they've done with Euron, there's one thing that we can say he is a warrior and a fighter. Yeah, and able to sneak up on people and pull off these massive victories when you don't expect him. Yeah, I mean, but those are plot contrivances. Oh, that has nothing to do with his character, of right? Course, of what course. the one thing you know about his character is he's really skilled at hand to hand combat and killing people. And he's sailed around the ship and he's crazy. Those are his three things. Yeah. How does Jamie beat him? It's just such a bad scene. It didn't need to be there. It On one certain level, I liked that that fight was very gritty and non-romantic. 
But yeah, I did like that. There's other ways to show that violence is not gritty and romantic, e.g. the rest of the fucking episode. I didn't need this fight. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with you there. Uh, we barely needed Euron uh, at all in this story, except to kind of lend some uh, additional villainy to Cersei and an extra arm of Cersei's villainy. Um, so yeah, I agree with you there. And then there's the you know, supremely satisfying moment of I'm the man who killed Jamie Lannister as he's staring up at the sky that uh, was was a little silly. Yeah, because he wasn't. Jamie Lannister yeah. is there walking away, you idiot. Yeah. No, but yeah, feeling like he dealt the death blow to the person he, uh, you know, has also stolen a woman from is, is the feeling that he has there. So it also just sucks to see him die with a big, greasy smile on his face, feeling like he uh, was a success. All right, let's talk about the dragon in the room. Let's talk about the villain turn of Daenerys. Let's dive into this, because I think this is where the meat and potatoes of the analysis will be. And this may be, I don't know, I'll find out at the end of this conversation how I feel, but this might be my the ugly in my the good, the bad, and the ugly. For starters, in the history of warfare in our world, the real world, anybody who conquers a country, nigh a continent, destroys a few cities on the way. I can give you some tangible examples. Julius Caesar, in his memoirs, who brought in many territories into the Roman Empire, one of them was Gaul. He had a war in a place called Gaul, which is modern-day France and parts of modern-day Germany. In his memoirs, he boasted that he murdered over one million Gauls. Over a million. Well, what's the population of King's Landing? They've said it many times, just about over a million people live in King's Landing. These were men, women, and children that he bragged that he slaughtered on his way to bringing Gaul into the fold. There's another story of Julius Caesar, something else that he did. When Julius Caesar was a young man, just coming of age, he got kidnapped by a group of pirates. While being kidnapped by these pirates, instead of just resigning to this fate, he actually took to the pirate life, and they became very fond of this young, noble um, Roman elite. And eventually he got ransomed, which is why he was kidnapped to begin with, and the pirates all loved him. Caesar went out, raised a bunch of ships, hunted the pirates down, and crucified every single one of them on mile markers at one a mile on the way from where he got them back towards Rome. Daenerys Sounds familiar. does this to the slave owners. Daenerys crucified every slave owner that she could on the way to Marine as penance for them killing their slaves. Daenerys has now got the blood of a million people on her conquest. There's a salad named after Caesar. He is one of the most important figures of Western civilization, and you could even argue all human civilization. No one thought he was mad. No one accused him of being mad. Yet here we are with Daenerys Stormborn having now killed a whole city full of people, presumably almost all dead, probably killed a million people in this episode. And she's now, in effect, conquered a continent by doing this. We'll see what happens in the next episode. But now the conversation is for her to do this, she has to be mad. She has to have gone insane. She's got to be a villain. Another parallel to Julius Caesar is that Julius Caesar had a particular vision for Rome. 
His particular political vision was that the Roman elites had too much land. Land was the connection to wealth in the Roman Empire. Roman elites, Roman nobles, high Roman generals and government officials, they snatched up all the land so people couldn't farm to take care of themselves. Instead of hiring the people whose land that they bought, they then bought slaves because it was cheaper to work them. And there was an influx of people to the cities who were dissatisfied and couldn't find work and the cities became unruly. Caesar's po political platform was based upon reforming land. We need to get land back into the hands of the average Romans. He had, and this is debatable, but for the purpose of this argument, he had a progressive, more liberal, more uh, let's turn power back to the people vision of how he wanted to rule. Does this sound like anyone else? Uh, yes, it does. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Let I me, do see what you're getting let at Let me here. spell this out. Actually, no. I'm going to continue my metaphors before I get to my main point. That's fine. We Americans like to think of our role in history as fundamentally good. Even when we make mistakes like putting slavery in the Constitution, like mass removal and extermination of Native Americans, there's still an overwhelming consensus that America is collectively done more good than bad to the world. One of the biggest pieces of evidence that Americans culturally like to point to that they've done good in the world is our role in World War II. How much we romanticize that what we did was stop fascism from taking root in the modern world and ending freedom. And while there is some truth to this way that we look at the American War, or the World War II, pardon me, there's also something else that America did in World War II. To date, historically, only one country has ever used a nuclear bomb in war. It's America. We did it in Japan, and we did it twice. We eliminated two cities off of the face of the planet with atomic bombs to bring the surrender of the Japanese Empire, bringing an end to World War II. Hiroshima and Nagasaki had more than just soldiers living in them. They had women, children, elderly, sick, young, poor, wealthy, you name it, non-combatants. America did this. Now, we can debate for a long time whether it was the right move or the wrong move, whether we did a terrible thing or a great thing, whether more people would have died if we hadn't dropped the nuclear bombs than if we did. But we still did those things on our way to carving a new world order called international neoliberalism, which has kept peace and prosperity, in particular in the western half of our planet, uh, since the end of World War II. I bring these examples between Caesar, and I bring these examples between nuclear combat for a reason. And that reason is that, presuming that Daenerys' entire motivations are emotional, that she is losing touch on controlling her rage, that she is losing touch perchance on her sanity, and because of that, she goes on a genocidal spree, does disservice to an entire long 10-year journey that has been about the moral greatness of power and that you can't get to the top without a lot of blood on your hands to flip it and make it simply about what seems to be an emotionally insecure conqueror undercuts the entire thematic premise of why I loved Game of Thrones to begin with. 
And what makes it sad is that the bells and the way that they showed Daenerys's face before the decision to take out King's Landing removes any grayness of the conversation. Was this a, a strategy? Did she plan to do it? Nope. She saw the Red Keep. She knew the Red Keep was in Cersei's hands and she went fucking Targaryen nuts. That's what happened. And man, am I struggling with this development. Well, and then significantly after we see uh, Daenerys make the decision and command Drogon to burn the city indiscriminately, as soon as we see her make that decision, which I think on Amelia Clark's part, she's doing some heavy, heavy lifting on this uh, villain turn because it's been really difficult to motivate this character towards a completely different trajectory than we were expecting or or wanting. Um, it, she's she's done, I think, a really stellar job of selling that. Uh, but once we see that happen, we don't see her face again for the rest of the episode. And this is something that disturbed me quite a bit: is that this character who we've been following since episode one of season one and who we've seen grow and change and we've seen, uh, you know, incredible character moments portrayed through her eyes and her reactions to the world around her. Uh, and we've understood, uh, even if we haven't totally sympathized with every decision that she has made uh, to conquer or to burn or to kill um, or to exert power over people, we're removed from her presence. And that takes us to the ground where we get the perspective of the people who are actually feeling the, the punishment, who are actually feeling the consequences. But we lose touch with our character. We lose touch with Daenerys and she becomes nothing more than the given circumstances of the episode. Uh, she stops being uh, a fully fleshed out person and begins, uh, you know, this sort of death from the sky angle. And I get excluded from her emotional journey from here on out. I get excluded from uh, how she feels about what she is doing. And that means I have to believe that Daenerys Targaryen, who once said that she never wanted the bones of a child laid at her feet again, uh, that she didn't want to be queen of the ashes, continues to make the same decision to burn them all, uh, for several hours without once questioning herself. Or if she does question herself, I don't get to see it. And that makes it a much harder leap for me to make uh, for this character who I have been uh, rooting for for so long. I, as they may have placed the seeds of, you know, every time a Targaryen is born, uh, the gods flip a coin and, and wait. Uh, Yes, I can see that there have been seeds planted that this could be her fate, but it is much harder for me to make the leap uh, from someone who perceives himself as a just liberator to someone who is willing to uh, willfully massacre innocents. That's really tough for me. It is, and I think it's not in the what, it's in the how for me. It's not that she burned the city, it's that they made it about an emotional, not strategic reaction, and that then we she becomes no longer a character. As you just articulated, she's just death from above. And as death from above, what can you be if not but a villain if you're death from above? Why, why should I empathize with the journey 
that this character is going from if it's not strategic, it's purely emotional, which can play into some potentially dangerous stereotypes uh, about women in power. And then it just becomes death from above, which is to say it just becomes something brutal and violent and abstract primal and no longer about a human being on a journey. And it's a tough thing to do with Daenerys. If I walked away from this episode feeling that there was a theme that if you're going to conquer a continent, at least a city has to burn, maybe several, and there's no way about it. All conquerors are mass murderers. If this is what that episode was saying, the only way to truly conquer is to be a mass murderer. I would have felt okay with it. But what this episode said to me instead of that, and in spite of that, was that Daenerys is losing it. She said she was going to never rule over the ashes. Now she's ruling over the ashes. That must be because she's a crazy Targaryen who would be reined in if only she had her two closest advisors in Masande and Jorah Mormont who died. So since she doesn't have them, all she's left with now is crazy Targaryen kill everybody-ism. Right. And that is not as interesting to me than an argument about the nature of power, about an argument. So let me back this up a bit. There is a little bit an argument about the nature of power happening, in particular in the scene with John and Daenerys in Dragonstone. The fire is blazing, and she says, you know, you have the people's love. I don't. All I have left now is fear, and that's the only way I can get this done is through fear. And John says, but I love you, but he refuses to kiss her, and he refuses to actually show her any acts of, of physical love like two lovers would have. And she says, it's fear then. The root of what makes political power, is it through love? Is it through fear? Those are valuable political debates that the show's engaged with in sophisticated and nuanced levels before, whether it is Tywin sending Tyrion to be Hand of the King in season two, and him saying, and you know Tyrion saying, don't worry, people don't fall in line, I'll just put heads on pikes. There's been an element of, hey, how do you get the small folk to rally to your side? Is it through killing them until they do, or is it through inspiring them? And Daenerys making an argument that, yes, I do need to use fear now, and that is the way that I'll gain political power, is a valid political argument to make if and only if the character is acting through a rational uh, point of view, if the character is acting strategically, if they are a sane and rational actor making a conscious political choice to use fear as the way to political power as opposed to any other means, whether that's self-governance, whether that's love, whether that's whatever you want to do, it's saying, hey, I'm going to take this more brutal, primal, and realistic form of power called fear, and I'm going to use that. If that's a rational decision, fine. But they grounded this in that the rational Daenerys says, once the bells are going to ring, I'm going to stop attacking. That's what the rational Daenerys says. So it is, if that's what the rational Daenerys says, what's her political motivation to burn the city? There isn't one. It's a personal motivation. Right. Yeah. What happens is the bells ring, signifying that she is now queen uh, of the Seven Kingdoms. She is officially the queen of Westeros, and she has everything she has ever wanted. She has taken the city uh, easily and without civilian deaths. And what happens in that moment is that that is not enough for her. 
Uh, she feels suddenly robbed of the violence that she wanted to, uh, you know, incur upon this city. She feels robbed of the wrath that she had inside of her. And so she makes that conscious choice instead of just going for Cersei to, you know, rain death upon innocent people, uh, which is absolutely an emotional uh, response. And that's a difficult thing to watch. And let's forget seven seasons of Daenerys being the secular humanist that we did an entire podcast about how her governing philosophy is about secular humanism, about power is there to help those without power. Fuck all that. Cersei's ringing some bells at a, a Targaryen. How dare she? And I get it. I totally get the reason she would do this rationally. What I don't get is the reason that they would grind it in, ground it, pardon me, in the emotion rather than in the reason, subverting all political arguments and making this just about vengeance that presumably sets up the next episode, which is work now at another battle for the throne, which will be John versus Daenerys in whatever form. And I must say the ending of this could completely change the way I feel about this episode. Yeah, Maybe it will, maybe it will be redeemed, but I feel for the first time in this season with a major head scratcher, despite how beautiful the cinematography was, despite the amazing performances and sound and visual editing, the fact that they made Daenerys the bad guy in the way that they made that Daenerys the bad guy in this episode, it it is tough for me to swallow. Yeah, it hurts. It definitely hurts. I want to pivot just slightly, but build off of some of the historical uh, things that you have brought into this comparison to Daenerys. And that's just to make uh, you know a slight reference to something from the A Song of Ice and Fire novels by George R. R. Martin. Uh, as we know, we have departed from the source material, but season eight has definitely, uh, in some subtle ways, tried to make its uh, gentle homages to things that were either left out or just not included for time uh, or took place, uh, you know, decades or centuries before the actions of A Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire. And uh, I want to call a little bit of attention to the title of this episode, The Bells, uh, and that moment where uh, Danny decides to, uh, you know, burn down King's Landing. And I'm going to bring up a character named John Connington, who is from... Uh, he appears in A Dance with Dragons. But he was uh, originally Hand of the King to Ares Targaryen, the Mad King and Danny's father. And he's perhaps best known for totally blowing it during Robert's Rebellion at an incident known as the Battle of the Bells. During the rebellion, uh, John Connington was tasked by Ares II to capture Robert before he could completely... Uh, you know, destroy the crown. And Robert had fled to the village of Stony Sept in the Riverlands. And because John insisted on only fighting Robert in single combat because he wanted to avoid civilian casualties, uh, he went door to door and he had his men go door to door to try and find out where Robert was hiding. And that bought all of this time for Ned Stark and his army to come and uh, defeat the loyalists to King Ares. Uh, so then John had his lands and titles stripped and personally blamed himself for the aftermath of this and blamed himself for Rhaegar's death and blamed himself for much of the ground that the rebels were able to gain 
based on this early victory. And as we know him in the novels, uh, as Griff, he is haunted by the decision that he made to spare the lives of all of these innocent people and to seek out just his one target. Uh, he is constantly feeling this regret and almost driving himself mad over it because he realizes he could have ended Robert's rebellion entirely by just raising Stony Sep to the ground, but that, of course, would have killed all of these innocent people. So I think there's just an interesting parallel being drawn between Danny's conflict, uh, the idea of the Battle of the Bells and the Bells of Surrender. The Battle of the Bells is known as that because the people in the Sept rang the bells to warn the people to go inside. Uh, and I think it's just making these uh, sort of gentle references to that as it tries to explain uh, how the history of Westeros influences the future and how there is always going to be a feeling of regret or uh, shame over what you choose to do in a battle, in a siege, or in a rebellion. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because one of the things that I think that this episode does well, it does make war feel horrific. Yeah. And Game of Thrones has done this before in other battle scenes really well. In particular, I'm thinking of the Battle of the Bastards, where war is very personal. It feels very chaotic. It feels very dangerous. And this feels that way as well. And Same director. And this also feels very grounded in following the journey of individual characters or individual commoners who aren't characters in the show. And war is horrific. When you are in a conflict with someone where the only way to resolve the conflict is to kill the other people on it until they surrender, you're engaged in the worst thing that humans have ever done to other humans. Um, arguably the worst thing that they have done because humans have done a lot of creative, terrible shit to each oh, other. Yeah. But in particular for societies, the worst thing one society can do to another is to try to kill that society until they submit and surrender. And I really enjoy the idea that there is a character from the books who did everything they could to spare civilian casualties. However, it strategically was a mistake that led to losing the war, which inevitably led to more deaths. Yeah. And when you're engaged in strategy in a war, there are very few laurels or principles that you can rest upon other than win at all costs. And that's the grayness that we've come to expect from Game of Thrones uh, that I think was sadly missing from Danny's villain turn. Exactly. Because if you did the whole thing... And I also understand that Daenerys has lost since she's moved to Westeros. She's lost the love of the people that she had back yeah. in Essos. She has lost two of her three dragons. She's lost half of her Unsullied. She's lost more than half of her Dothraki. She's lost the allies that she formed there in the Tyrells in Dorne. She's done nothing but lose. And this is not a character that's accustomed to loss so I think it's okay that she feels very emotional and vulnerable and, and isolated, isolated, but I don't think it's okay to make the decision to slaughter a city just based on whims and fancy, unless you want this character to now be the bad guy. I read an article on the AVTV club by someone by the name of Miles McKnight, a very interesting read on this episode. It's called Game of Thrones brutally asserts that the game in question will have no winner. 
one of the aspects that he discusses is that there would be a form of, or is rather a form of whiplash around Daenerys' villain turn. Here you think the whole time it's really all about the White Walkers, that's the war that matters. Whoops, nope, it's really about Cersei. And here you are thinking, okay, well, we're going to get that showdown with Cersei once we get Cersei out. And then, whoops, nope, it's actually, it's been Danny the whole time. You thought she was the, the, the hero of it, but nope, turns out she's actually the real villain of it. And there's a, just a whiplash effect in such yeah. few episodes having so many turn on a dimes with the villains that is a little emotionally draining for me. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I was left a little cold, sorry, by The Long Night. And thematically, there can be a through line from The Long Night to Cersei to Danny. But the point is, is that Game of Thrones was always a show that took its time. And I have so much respect for the show creators and what they've done in this adaptation. And I can't imagine what it's like to start an adaptation under the idea that the source material would be complete before you completed your show and to have that not turn out to be the, the case and to have nothing to adapt now and what they've been able to do since they've outrun the source material has been phenomenal that they've kept this together and that it's worked. And so I've, nothing but respect and love and admiration for everyone involved in the Game of Thrones production. But now we're at a point with one episode left that's going to have a villain in it, I suppose. And that villain has been the hero, one of, if not the main heroes, since season one, episode one, until last night's episode. And that's a hard turn to take. And it's a quick turn to take. And... It's a turn that undercuts a lot of why a lot of us were on this journey to begin with. And it's going to take a long time for us to meditate and to think about that and to see what that means and to see whether that's good or that's bad. We'll see what happens in the next episode. It could all pay off because I'm talking about a journey still in the middle of it. Yeah, absolutely. But it's still, you know, I'm at this point right now where I'm scratching my head. Yeah, me too. Uh, on that note, I think we should do our standout scenes and MVP characters uh, just to call out some of the amazing things that were part of this episode, too, because we have spent a lot of time on the uh, things that we could have been done better. But I do Sorry, think it's I was, important. I was very fired up after our rewatch and had so much to say. I respect that and I love it. But let's do our standout scenes and MVPs. All right. Do you want to go first? Sure. So I'll start with a standout scene. Um, I loved every single second of the very short scene of the Hound and Arya in the map room in the Red Keep. Uh, this was something uh, that I hadn't expected to feel uh, as as emotionally about as I did, but really was, uh, you know, a gut punch to me um, to watch these two characters who have a really complicated history together, and over this season have seen that complicated history culminate. Uh, especially at the Battle of Winterfell, walking in to fulfill their personal revenge plots, the Hound looks at Arya and says, you don't want this life. And as he takes her head in his hand, that his hand is as big as her head, she just suddenly becomes a little girl again. And I have to give a lot of credit to Maisie Williams for the work that she was doing just in the muscles of her face to suddenly be the girl who was never a faceless assassin, to suddenly change and transform in front of us 
and for us to see the vulnerability that we haven't seen in years was really wonderful. Um, and to see that kind of tenderness between these two characters was something I really loved. And I think it, it showed that they've handled Arya really quite well this season, um, given that I haven't enjoyed watching her character in many, many years, uh, and gave her an opportunity to say, yes, the thing that I have been, the, the path that I have been on for these years matters, but uh, you're right, I'm going to go a different way. Yeah, I love it too that when he puts his hand on her his head lovingly, that is probably the only time we've seen Sandor Kiglane do any physical acting that had any kind of tenderness or affection or sweetness yeah. or yeah, or affection in it. And it was amazing. And it was very cathartic. I totally agree. Fantastic standout scene there. What about you? My standout scene has to be the Golden Company sitting out front of the gates. And we've heard we all of us Game of Thrones nerds have known that the Golden Company only joins the winning side of a war. They're supposed to be the fiercest uh, cell swords in all of Essos and just sitting there and the reversal and the subversion of expectations when Daenerys burst through the back and just eviscerates them. And then the leader of the company falls. Uh, what's his name again? Harry Strickland. So Harry Strickland falls off of his horse. The Dothraki are coming and he's like, oh, fuck this. He turns around and starts to run. And the shot where the Dothraki follow him to his, the sword hits and he falls and it's Grey Worm was just fucking amazing visual storytelling. And it showed how fucked Cersei was that this entire legendary fighting force is gone in the blink of a dragon eye was fantastic. That was definitely my favorite part of the whole season or not the whole season of the whole episode. Yeah. I enjoyed that a lot too. It was really surprising. Um, but yeah, it once again reaffirmed the, the sheer and raw power of Danny and these dragons and these weapons of mass destruction that she wields. And I want to call out another scene. Yeah. And in particular, I'm just interested on the dialogue about this online. The end of Jamie and Cersei yeah. when the red keep fell on them. So did it make a ton of sense with everything that Jamie has gone through for him to come back to Cersei? No, no, it didn't really. And did they do that character a lot of favors by having to do that? No, but the moment with Cersei and Jamie, a lot of people are saying that they wanted Cersei to die more brutally or at the hands of one of our heroes, at least. Yeah, they wanted to see the comeuppance. Yeah. You evil bitch, I finally am plunging a sword through your throat. And I suppose from a retribution standpoint, that makes sense. But the fact that the Red Keep literally coming down on them yeah. with no other options, that they are underground, trapped, without friends, without anyone that cares for them, and all they can do, all she, all Cersei can do is beg Jamie for her life, which she, he can't give to them, to see them both completely without power and with them just looking at each other and just being like, we're fucked as the symbol of the thing that they have been fighting for power, the red keep, the iron throne falls on them. I actually thought that was quite awesome. Yeah. I thought it was really quite poetic. Uh, and to see, to see Cersei, uh, the most confident, the most overconfident, 
uh, ruler of them all, the, the villain who never thought she could be undone, uh, undone by her own machinations at every, uh, at every level, I think was really powerful. And to see that uh, fear in her for one of the first times that we've seen it, or the first time in a long time, uh, that she actually lets herself get in touch with the fact that she doesn't want to die. Uh, and I actually thought that was a really interesting end for her character. And probably more um, more painful for her than having you know her little brother wrap his hands around her neck. It was very much like, I don't want to die not like this. This is not a blaze of glory for me. I should have gone out in a blaze of glory. Well, also that the fact, the very fact that she's admitting that, oh my God, I taunted this enemy through like the position of superb confidence, not willing to give up my throne, realizing that my life was more precious than the throne. It always should have been more precious than the throne was a, just a, a, I thought a fitting end to one of the great characters, albeit terrible, but great characters of game of Thrones. Yeah. I love Cersei. So I just wanted to throw that out there that I thought that was very fitting. A lot of people didn't like it. And that episode was bloody enough. Yeah. It was savage enough. I don't think I needed that scene to be more savage. That's just me. Give me your MVP character. It's Arya. I never thought I'd say it, um, but I I loved watching her in this episode. Uh, I loved that she grounded us through the escape from King's Landing, and I was really moved by, after her scene with Sandor, after her scene with the Hound, um, choosing to be Arya, choosing a life not of revenge, but of justice. Uh, She decides that she wants to help these people that she has no personal stake in uh, escape, and she clings to the uh, the commoners that we spoke about before, the mother and child, and the child with the horse figurine, and does everything she can to save them, and fails, and barely escapes with her life. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's kind of a moving uh, character journey for her to take. And I also was really uh, struck by that final scene with the white horse. I couldn't really figure out what I felt about it in the moment. I was like, what is going on? Did we just step into a 1980s sword and sorcery movie? Is that a unicorn? Like what's happening? And I think part of that was that there was such a reverence and a magic placed on, uh, for the first time in a while, an ordinary creature. It's not a dire wolf, it's not a dragon. It's just an ordinary creature who happens to have survived this battle, just like she has, miraculously, uh, and it also epitomizes some form of escape. You could say that it's the pale mare of the uh, horsemen of the apocalypse known as death, and Arya has become death within this narrative. Or you can say it represents freedom, or it could be the hound uh, reincarnated to save her and bear her to uh, you know a new life, or just a representation of the horse figurine that the little girl was carrying. But I thought it was a really moving scene, really strange and surreal. Um, but I liked seeing Arya ride off into the sunset. I love that very much. I think that's super freaking cool. The scenes in that episode with Arya trying to escape after she does, decides not to try to kill the queen with Sandor and that she's trying to escape King's Landing was phenomenal 
and it ending in this beautiful, visually poetic, surrealistic scene with her and the horse. Yeah, I totally agree. I felt like I was watching an 80s fantasy movie. Yeah. I, I totally did. After watching, it felt like it combined the great elements of a movie like Saving Private Ryan or the HBO show Band of Brothers with Excalibur. Right, know? or like, Lord of the Rings. Like Lord Shadow Facts just showed up to bear them. Absolutely. It was so cool. And yeah, my hat's off to the director, cinematographer, lighting sets, like the production crew on this episode. This was without a doubt, I think the most amazing, beautiful Game of Thrones episode I've seen maybe ever. Yeah, visually it was stunning. It, it really was. It was fantastic. So my MVP character, I'm going to pick Tyrion again. And I know that's oh, two weeks wow. in a row. Okay. But I'm going to tell you why I'm going to pick Tyrion because... Tyrion gets to do a few things in this episode that I thought were phenomenal. One, he obeys his queen as he promised Varys that he would and turns Varys over despite the fact that that's his closest friend in the world, you know, other than maybe Jamie, but Jamie's his brother. Varys is a person that understands him and yet he is still willing to put the queen's interest ahead of Varys's, leads to his execution and... I thought it was so fitting that he looked Varys in the eye and said, it was me. It was me. He lets him know I did it. And Varys says goodbye, my old friend and respects him. And even then he knows it's not personal and they still Varys dies friends. I like that even though he is sworn to his queen and will fight for her and will turn over friends to protect her. He's still Tyrion and will let Jamie go if he thinks that will save the lives of the people of King's Landing. I loved that he said tens of thousands of people that are innocent versus one not-so-innocent dwarf. Seems like a fair trade to me. I thought that was vintage Tyrion calculation, but for the first time that we've seen in a while, him putting that calculation ahead of himself, because he's always been able to calculate for his own interest or to thwart his enemies or, you know, he's been able to talk his way out of anything. And that was very much like, what is the value of my soul and my self-sacrifice in this moment? Yeah, I think that's wonderful. I would rather die knowing I tried to save these people, even though I, into his mind, and, and potentially it is, he's also still serving the queen. Yeah. In doing that, he's not giving up on serving her because he's going to try to help her get power. But he also gets to return the favor of his brother, try to save his brother and his sister and his, you know, unborn niece or nephew's life. So he's trying to save their their lives as well. I thought it was vintage great Tyrion. And um, I thought it was just beautiful. And I thought the emotional core of this episode, the thing that made me like feel the most emotions is when Tyrion looks at Jamie. It's just like, Everyone thought I was a monster. I wouldn't have survived without you. And in a show that most characters will talk around their subtext, when a character really says what they mean, it should be a line like that. Yeah, it should be that impactful. That should be when it's like a no more like trying to talk or politic or strategize I need to tell my brother I love him and I want to tell him thank you. And that this was is the last time I'm ever going to see him. I know it. And I need to tell him I love him. Yeah. And they hug. And I thought like, oh, Tyrion, MVP for me. Even then after that, all he does is stand with his mouth open at the violence and he doesn't have much else to do 
the things that he does in the first like 30, 40 minutes of this episode, I thought were the most amazing. I thought had the greatest character development. I really don't want Tyrion to get executed in the next episode. He's been so good in season eight. So yeah. like Tyrion and Arya have been the two characters that I have thought have been the most interesting by far, um, have done the most, have been involved in almost every big and small decision. I really want Tyrion to live. If Daenerys really is a villain, she's probably going to feed him to a dragon. But yeah. Yeah, I, I agree that he and Arya have had the best, I think, and most consistent character development across this season. When everybody else has felt... Uh, a little shaky and a little bit like they were pawns to the plot. Um, but should we move into some light predictions because you set that up just now? Yeah, I mean, Arya kills Daenerys. I think that's very, very likely. Um, it could even fulfill, you know, if we're if we're going this direction, the last part of Melisandre's blue eyes, green eyes, brown eyes prophecy, Danny having green eyes. Yeah, I think it's very, very likely that she's the one to deal the death blow to Daenerys, thereby also saying, you know, she does, in fact, kill the queen. There's still a chance that Jon does it, um, but at this point, I think it's actually leaning a lot more towards Arya. Yeah, I mean, what's how are the Knights of the North going to stop Daenerys after she just burned King's Landing to the ground? There was no character more better prepared for a Daenerys assault than Cersei, and she just got destroyed in the matter of hours. So I don't see there being a big battle in this next episode. I also think logistically, how many big battles can they do in a show, in a, in a series, without them, A, running out of money, and B, potentially losing half of the audience. But yeah, I mean, John's going to be the king. All right, all right. Uh, if that's what you think. I feel like that's the only logical option left. I'm, I just don't want it to happen. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we get something more interesting than that. Who knows? It might still be very interesting. Yeah, you're right. Well, until next time, guys, uh, Dracaris. Dracaris. And be kind. Be kind. <laughs>